1: and I'm Debbie Kang sitting in for Siva Vadianathan
0: and from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute this is Democracy in Danger
1: Will, thanks for having me on the show again.
0: It's a pleasure, Debbie. And really, we couldn't have a better guest host for our topic today because we're revisiting one of the most troubled aspects of U.S. democracy and society, namely America's fraught immigration policies.
1: And specifically, we're going to be talking about asylum cases, how the courts and advocates clash over who is and isn't worthy of safe haven.
0: Debbie, we know that the legal hurdles for seeking asylum in the United States are very high, and they're especially high for Latin Americans, and they've only gotten worse in the last few years. The influx of women, children, and families across the southwestern border has intensified. Our legal system has frozen. Debbie, is it true that there's a backlog of nearly two million asylum cases that are stalled in our immigration system?
1: Yes, that's correct. And while this dilemma is associated with Donald Trump's cruel immigration policies, really the problem goes way back. You'll remember that in 2014, there was an increase in families migrating together and children crossing the southern border alone. By 2018, about half of the arrests at the U.S.-Mexico border involved families and unaccompanied minors.
0: Well, a major driver behind these migrations is instability and violence in places like El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala— and not just political violence, but gendered violence against women and LGBTQ people who are especially at risk in their home countries.
1: Well, our guest today is a historian from the University of New Mexico who has been leveraging her academic expertise in support of difficult and often harrowing asylum cases where sexual violence is driving people to flee their homes and seek entry into the United States. We're joined in the studio by Kim Gauderman. She's the editor of a new handbook called Practicing Asylum. The book teaches academics how to become advocates on behalf of asylum seekers who are fleeing sexual-based violence. Kim, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
2: Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with Will.
1: Kim, the contributors to your book come from disciplines like anthropology and history. You've also got legal scholars and advocates. And the common thread is that they've all been working in the trenches to bring the ivory tower into action in asylum cases. So tell us your story. What drew you to this work? And what were your first
2: experiences like? Well, like many academics who get brought into expert witnessing, my first contact was Uh, an email that came out of the blue from an attorney in New York City. And when I received that email, because it was so unexpected, I at first thought that it was an error that had been misdirected. And when I went back through my emails and looked, I saw that indeed, this attorney was contacting me about domestic violence in Ecuador. So at that point, I contacted a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Tom Davies, who is well known as a, an expert witness. He had been practicing for decades. So uh, I called him up and I said, so Tom, do you think I can be helpful? I'm a colonial historian. Do I have the skill set that I need to be helpful in asylum cases? And he said, absolutely, you do. And so I worked with Tom Davies. He mentored me, and my first cases for asylum were for LGBTQ plus cases for Peruvians. And then I expanded to include gender-based violence cases for women and children. And then I geographically expanded to the Northern Triangle, first Guatemala, and then El Salvador, and then finally Honduras. Um, but I've kept my thematic focus as an expert witness on gender-based and sexuality-based cases.
0: Kimberly, let me ask you to step back a moment and just set the stage for our listeners and fill in for us um, some of the important legal distinctions that we're dealing with here. What is an asylum seeker? What does American law say about asylum versus other kinds of migration? The terms are really important, aren't they?
2: Um, they really are. I think it's very important to recognize that those uh, individuals who are seeking asylum are fleeing harm um, in their countries of origin. But asylum has very rigid standards. And for asylum seekers, you must be seeking um, relief on at least one of five grounds. Race, religion, nation, political opinion, or in the cases that I work on most often, particular social group. Now, what these grounds have in common is that they are group identities. They're corporate identities. They're identities that you cannot change or are so fundamental you should not have to change. And the connection between the harm then and the ground must be that the person who is harming you is not harming you for personal reasons. It's not common crime, right? It's because they view you as a member in one of these groups, right? Uh, the difficult part about the basic requirements for asylum is that the harm they've experienced is usually really personal. They interpret it as a personal, intimate crime. In our asylum system, we have to be able to demonstrate that the harm that the individual experienced is not because of individual characteristics, but because of group characteristics. And this is why an expert witness can be so important in these cases. Group identity is culturally defined. And so an expert witness is able to substantiate these different group interpretations of identity in ways that those who uh, do not understand, have not studied that country as deeply, right, might not perceive.
0: So, Kimberly, how does your perspective as a scholar of early modern Latin American history actually serve what you're doing in the modern and contemporary time. It, it always strikes me as you know, intimidating for people to jump from era to era as scholars. Have you found continuities, disruptions? How does this historical background bring you to this, uh, to this contemporary topic?
2: Well, thank you for that question. Indeed, uh, when I got that first email, I I thought, uh, why is she contacting me? a colonial historian for a modern day case. Uh, And I did later find out how she found me. Um, I was in a database that I learned about later. Uh, As an early historian, uh, I've always focused on indigeneity and gender uh, and sexuality. And so the connection for me to these issues in the modern period have been consistent. As an early historian, I have learned how to look at denaturalizing uh, social relations. And uh, I've always taught modern Latin American courses at UNM, but Certainly, since um, I've become an expert witness, I have broadened right the breadth of courses that I, I teach to include um, modern issues, right of LGBT plus persons in Honduras, for example, or classes that include the Garifuna um, Afro-Hondurans uh, as another example. And as a modern and an early historian, I really see that the issues that we face for the asylum cases that I work on, anyway. These are, these are questions of the nation state. These are modern issues that can't simply be swept into some type of category, uh, loosely configured as the colonial legacy. And if we're not able to look specifically and see the culpability of the nation state and the inability of particular states to protect their citizenry, then we're not going to be able to understand the origins of these problems and um, be able to resolve them. So
1: Kim, if we can, let's dive into some of the cases you've been involved in. You and your colleague, Gabriela Torres, an anthropologist who works on Guatemala, the two of you begin one chapter with two composite cases as an illustration of the sadly commonplace occurrences advocates are likely to encounter. That is, Latin American women who have faced sexual violence. One is a lesbian whose attackers tried to, quote, make her a woman. The other is essentially kidnapped and tortured by her boyfriend. What do the similarities and differences in their stories reveal about how the U.S. asylum system operates?
2: When Dr. Torres and I decided to write this chapter, both of us had spent years uh, working on gender-based and sexuality-based cases. And what we both recognized um, through our experience is that In these cases, sexual harm in the asylum system is often perceived as a personal, intimate crime that is not valid as a ground for asylum, that sexual assault could in fact make cases more difficult for women. And the asylum system itself, the mechanisms of asylum, treat harm differently for different groups of people and diminish the impact of the harm specifically for women. Uh, the barriers for women are higher than for other groups seeking asylum. And as you noted, these are composite cases. And they aren't cases that are specific to real individuals but it was heart-wrenching to see how these same kinds of experiences are so universal that we could make composite cases. In one context, when we think about sexual assault and some of the experiences that we narrate, they seem unique. They seem horrible in their own specific way. But in fact, these are the kinds of experiences that we see over and over again in the cases that we work in that LGBTQ plus um, persons are sexually assaulted by their own family members, by police officers, by people in the general public, and that women are also sexually assaulted by their own family members, by their own partners, and that violence that they experience is dismissed um, in their own societies and they are not aided, right, by security officials or police officers.
1: So if we can follow up a little bit, tell us about the success rate in the asylum cases of the kind that you've been called on to support. Talk about some of the legal hurdles involved in these cases. These, as you know, are complex cases, and the law is designed to make things simple, to make things black and white, so judges can make yes or no determinations. So I'm wondering, how do you cope with that?
2: Well, the success rate for asylum cases varies dramatically um, depending on what country you come from. So I focus on Latin American cases. Many of my cases are from the Northern Triangle. And in fact, it's those countries, um, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, that have some of the um, lowest success rates. Um, they had a denial rate of over 80%. And this is compared to Chinese asylum seekers. They are actually the largest single group. Many people don't realize it. All the news, right, that we have is about those people coming to the border that we share with Mexico and that they are these Central Americans. But in fact, um, in this last 20 years, uh, one out of five asylum seekers are Chinese. But they have a 70% success rate
0: just I'm very curious now I think I understand the stigma why the rate would be very low for Central American asylum seekers but I'm also curious if there's a theory as to why the rates for Chinese applicants is the success rate is much higher
2: well i I think that um it's likely that the ground for asylum um, for um, Chinese um, is religion and political opinion, which are strong grounds for asylum. So I think that that is an explanation. Um, I also think that the uh, political relations between the United States and these different countries also plays um, a part in this decision making. We know the United States government has supported um, dictatorships in um, Latin America and specifically in Central America. And it's also true that um, the United States continues, right, to support uh, administrations in Central America that are known to be violators of human rights. And so it would be contrary, perhaps, to, um, our government's interest to support regimes, um, and then in another, right, realm, um, say those who are fleeing those regimes that we support, right, um, deserve to be protected. So I, I think that relations, foreign relations, also plays a part in determining which groups are more likely to be allowed to pursue asylum claims in the United States.
1: As you know, when it comes to the domestic legal landscape with respect to asylum, as well as circumstances abroad, circumstances in these countries that you're working on, those circumstances, the political and social circumstances are constantly shifting so as an expert witness, when you prepare to testify, how do you deal with all of these changes, both on the domestic front and
2: also abroad? So as an expert witness, uh, we do need to, to keep alert um, because, in fact, um, country conditions shift um, dramatically dramatically. So, um, for example, I work on Honduras and Honduras went through a coup in 2009 and that brought in the National Party once again, which is a very conservative party and one that's very corrupt. The last president of Honduras is now in the United States facing lifetime imprisonment because of drug trafficking. So when those events occur, um, as an expert witness, that is when uh, you have to dig deep to try to understand what are the political um, ramifications of these regime changes and how are they affecting, right, the specific groups that one is working with. So for me, right, working in Honduras was to track what the effect was on women um, and LGBTQ plus persons. How were they affected by this high level narco trafficking? What kind of support, right, were gangs getting from the national government that were then targeting the group? that I'm working with. Because again, for asylum, it's not enough to point to harm. And so this is, in fact, a problem when you have gang violence, for example, right? Gangs are not nice to anyone. But if you're an LGBT plus person and you're fleeing gang violence, right, it's likely the gang targeted you because you are seen as gender nonconforming and therefore more vulnerable in society and therefore security officials are less likely to assist you and therefore you don't have family that supports you that would be able to protect you. So these are the kinds of situations and the kind of research that an expert witness um, needs to do in these kinds of cases that I work on.
1: So I know you teach, you also publish your own books for a scholarly audience, and then you're keeping up with all of these developments in multiple countries in Latin America. So I'm wondering how do you juggle all of this, and what advice do you have for other scholars who want to get into this work? Because it's a lot of work, right?
2: It is a lot of work, and it it keeps me very busy. But I do think it's sustainable, uh, this type of work as an expert witness with my academic life. I relish research. And historians have a specific research methodology. Um, we triangulate sources. We curate archives of documentation. And this is exactly the kind of work that I do as an expert witness. And I have expanded, right, the ways that I do research because of this work in uh, modernity, uh, working with, you know, current political situations. And I have used this breadth of research to teach new courses, right, to connect to more scholars. And it brings the skill set of a historian directly into issues of social justice. Um, is this is the kind of research that has direct impact on how people are gonna live, where they're gonna live, if they're gonna live. And being in a courtroom and writing um affidavits, it is another venue for our teaching. Because essentially what we're doing is teaching attorneys, we're teaching judges about conditions in countries that we know very well in order to provide information ultimately to an immigration judge so that that judge can make an informed decision about the status of an individual. Uh, so this is, is work that in my mind has been really fulfilling personally, but it's also been fulfilling professionally.
0: Kimberly, I I wonder if you can swoop back up and look at the big picture for a sec. Um, Asylum and immigration have become so complex. They involve so much chicanery. You know, there's misinformation about it. It's heavily politicized. It's become a, a third rail in many ways of our politics you know, there is a lot of bad faith out there with respect to our, our immigration policies and how they function or don't function. Can you just say, as we kind of you know think about what's at stake in your work, what does this problem uh, tell us about how our democracy is functioning? What, what kind of democratic society transforms itself into a place that can't live up to its own legal framework, or in fact, really has never put into place an adequate legal framework for dealing with the problem of migration?
2: I think it's important to start by clarifying that immigration law itself is in the purview of Congress. And the last overhaul of our immigration um, and nationalization code was in 1996. What that means is that we have been living with the same immigration laws since 96, and yet we all know that immigration restrictions have increased. And so the question is, how can the law stay the same, right? A law that Congress has authority over, and yet there have been really dramatic shifts to restrict asylum to detain asylum seekers, to detain women and children asylum seekers, right? What's the connection to that? And I will say that in this process, the power of the executive branch increased because Congress, people that we vote for have failed to take action on this important issue, right? And we saw under the Trump administration restrictions to deny asylum specifically for women specifically um, for those who are fleeing gang violence. So the president, the, through the executive power, is able to enact policies. And we've seen this in the enactment of Title 42, which is the health um, law that's been used to deny asylum seekers the right to even ask for asylum. It immediately expels them um, outside the border into Mexico. That was begun under President Trump. But President Biden has continued this action um, that many find unconstitutional because title 8 says that those who are fleeing harm have the right to ask for protection and that we as a country must provide a process for them to demonstrate that they are deserving of that protection we are violating international refugee law as well by putting people back into harm who in fact have um, a legitimate request for us to consider their safety. So what's happening in immigration is happening outside of the will of the people.
0: Well, Kimberly Goderman, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you.
0: Kimberly Godderman is an associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. She's also an affiliate of the UNM Law School, and she's the editor of the new volume, Practicing Asylum, a Handbook for Expert Witnesses in Latin American Gender and Sexuality-Based Asylum Cases.
1: Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back.
0: Debbie, there is a lot of academic expertise that goes into this work. And Kimberly talked a lot about her training and how it applies to this work. But I imagine there's also a certain amount of emotional depths or emotional reserves that expert witnesses have to draw upon as well. It's not just an academic problem, right? I mean, we're talking about individuals who are suffering grave harm, who are seeking safety. How do scholars like yourself balance the you know, legal complexities and the academic work against what I'm sure must be a certain emotional quality to this work? Do they fuel each other, or do you have to kind of keep these things separated?
1: Yeah, for sure. Those two things fuel each other. And I think one of the things that keeps me going in my own expert witness work, and this is very similar to what Kim was saying, is the client and knowing that our work has a real impact on our clients themselves. Our research has an impact, in Kim's case, on whether or not they live or die. For me, my research has an impact often on whether or not our client gets to be out of prison or on bond. So definitely knowing that that's, that's one of the best kinds of motivations.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that. You know, having that sense that you are really addressing the harm that individual people, real individual people, are suffering is difficult but also motivating. Just to pull back a little bit on this problem of asylum, though, I mean, the idea of asylum wasn't it, in a sense, designed to offer refuge to people who were persecuted for what we might imagine to be conventional notions of persecution. I can't practice my religious freedom in country X. I'm persecuted for it, so I want to flee to the United States. Uh, I can't pursue my political interests here. I'm being persecuted for them, so I want to flee. Why has bringing sexual persecution, gender-based persecution, into the asylum framework been so difficult?
1: The problem here is that there's a long connection Uh, between asylum policy and the Cold War. So for many, many years, U.S. asylum policy was used as a tool to combat communism at home and abroad. To embarrass the communists, essentially. Yeah, to embarrass communists. And so uh, the United States, in admitting asylum seekers and refugees, often privileged those individuals from communist leaning or communist countries themselves. And in 1980, the United States, through the 1980 Refugee Act, tried to change that. And they tried to decouple refugee admissions from these ideological and geopolitical priorities. But that still comes back. And we see that in the disparate admission of Ukrainian refugees and how we're treating Latin American asylum seekers at the border We still see the lingering effects, the legacies of the Cold War in our asylum policy.
0: And what Kimberly pointed to was that Chinese applicants have a higher success rate, and that may very well be because there is a a geopolitical rivalry.
1: That also goes back to the Cold War. Do you think,
0: Debbie, just reflecting a little bit on the work that expert witnesses do, you know, Kimberly pointed out that the success rate of asylum seekers from Central Latin America— is pretty low. Uh, Is there a danger that you just begin to feel like the system is broken and can't be reformed? Or are there occasional sort of shafts of sunlight where you think, wait a minute, there's an opportunity here to improve things? You know, what Kimberly pointed to is that it's discouraging to see how little the Biden administration has done to dismantle some of the Trump era executive orders uh, that have made asylum even more difficult than it already was. But there must be some sense that If only we can change the conversation, if only we can push a little harder, we can improve the system. I'm just wondering how expert witnesses deal with this problem Mm -hmm. of almost feeling like you're on the short end of the stick.
1: Yeah, I think the rays of light here are the immigration attorneys, the federal defenders, the many immigration nonprofits who are working to transform the legal landscape for immigrants and asylum seekers. I think there's a network of us and we we definitely look to each other to try to to make change and to reform the system. But that said, Biden, as you know, is under enormous pressure to once again placate constituents who might favor anti-immigrant or restrictionist policies.
0: The politicization of asylum beyond its initial purpose, which is to provide refuge for political refugees and for spiritual refugees, religious refugees, and others, is one of the most cynical developments in our politics, essentially uh, using the framework of, of race and and racial panic to define the question of immigration and asylum in particular. And it's not surprising, given what we know about the American polity, but it's such a betrayal of the initial purposes of having an asylum regime to begin with, which is to offer genuine safe havens for those who are suffering, for so many reasons, persecution in their home country.
1: Yes. And the most robust forms of our asylum and refugee system emerged out of World War II, and the horrors of the Holocaust, and this idea of never again. Never again are we gonna commit this kind of wide-scale racism and terror committed by Nazi Germany. But those lessons are slowly being forgotten, and I think that's why you're seeing these really horrible racist tropes being applied to refugees and asylum seekers once again. That's all for this episode of the show. In a couple of weeks, Democracy in Danger heads to Chile, where efforts to adopt one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, recently fell flat. So from the beginning, they were undermining the process, calling the convention a political circus, and
0: people really didn't read the constitution. In the meantime, let us know your thoughts on immigration or anything else. Tag us on Twitter at dndpodcast. Podcast. That's D-I-N-D, podcast. And if you listen to the show on Overcast, make sure to recommend Democracy in Danger on the app. It's a great way to help us find new listeners.
1: Our webpage is dindanger.org. It's got show notes and background material on every episode.
0: Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol. Rebecca Barry is our assistant producer. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B Webster.
1: Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Quarsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Debbie Kang.
0: And I'm Will Hitchcock. Siva will be back with me next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.